This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is COVID Conspiracies. I'm your host, Monique Baudet. When the pandemic first started back in early 2020, few people imagined we'd have an effective vaccine against the disease. Now we have several, and countries that are reaching high vaccination levels are seeing the disease decline. If only there was a similar treatment for COVID conspiracy theories, which continue to circulate even as the pandemic eases in some wealthy countries. Researchers say there are ways to neutralize conspiracy theories, but they'll take time and a lot of education. Today, in our final episode, Phil Tank of the Saskatoon Star Phoenix looks into a cure for conspiracies. Those who study COVID-19 conspiracy theories and misinformation say solutions to the problem prove elusive. Evolving health information, the polarizing debate in the United States, and the difficulty with gathering information create challenges. In previous episodes, We've examined the origins and psychology of conspiracy theories, as well as how they can lead to harm. Conspiracy theorists themselves can be difficult to reach. Jonathan Jerry works as a science communicator with the McGill Office for Science and Society. Jerry co-hosts the medical podcast, The Body of Evidence, and appears in various media to explain science and debunk pseudoscience. He says the mindset of conspiracy theorists can be difficult to penetrate. They think they've arrived at a conclusion through critical thinking. It's very, very difficult. Um, I personally tend not to spend too much time with individuals who believe in grand conspiracy theories, especially since I do most of my interactions online during the pandemic. Uh, social media platforms are not very conducive to you know, productive, empathetic dialogue with people who disagree with you. So the, there is no magic bullet to, to talking somebody out of believing in a grand conspiracy theory. You know, it requires a lot of empathy, um, a lot of listening uh, to the other person, um, avoiding confrontations when it comes to somebody that you're living with. Um, you know, it might, be a, it might be a relative, it might be a spouse, it might be a close friend. Sometimes what I've, what I've been told from people who are, who are expert at this is that the, the best thing to do is to just keep the dialogue going and avoid discussing um, the conspiracy theory and changing the subject when it comes up because facts are not going to cut it for that person. This is somebody who believes that they, are, they have used critical thinking to reach their conclusion that there's a grand conspiracy theory. Because when you go, when you tumble down that rabbit hole, it can really feel like, unlike the rest of the, of, of the population, you are actually doing critical thinking. You're doing your own research. You're going online, you're questioning the narrative, uh, and you're finding evidence of some sort of conspiracy. And so, and so when people like me, who are not conspiracy theorists, engage with, with conspiracy theorists, they perceive me as being a sheep, as being somebody who's just, you know, repeating lines from the government and public health agencies and who is not thinking for himself. Um, so, so just providing more data to, to these people is, is unlikely to get them to change their mind. Any single intervention with somebody who is, you know, 
all the way down the conspiracy rabbit hole is unlikely to get them to change their mind. And what we often see is that it's the believer themselves who ends up deciding on their own to stop embracing a grand conspiracy theory. And there are lots of ways in which they can arrive at that. Jerry uses marriage as a metaphor to distinguish between hardcore conspiracy believers and those who might encounter the misinformation they share. Conspiracy theorists might be impossible to reach, but they're also a very small part of the population. It's very difficult to put a number on it because, you know, I think it's important also to differentiate between uh, people who are flirting with conspiracy theories versus those that are in like a long-term marriage with conspiracy theories. There are degrees of belief. So, so I, think, I think it's important not to, to put everybody into that, that same kind of space. It's difficult. I mean, if we look at the anti-vaccination movement, which is not a conspiracy theory per se, but it is often supported by the conspiracy theory that the pharmaceutical industry as a whole is conspiring against people to, you know, churn out uh, toxic vaccines. The anti-vax, the numbers that I've seen for the anti-vaccination movement is roughly one to two to two percent of the population. When we look at fluctuations of belief in conspiracy theory over time, uh, again, it's a difficult thing to measure. Uh, I'm, I'm aware of one study where what they did is that they looked over many decades in the United States at the letters that were sent to uh, the editors of, it might have been the New York Times or some, 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 some big publication like that. And they, they essentially scan those, 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 those letters, those, those texts, to, um, to see the, the language uh, that was being used and what percentage of these from year to year uh, seemed to endorse some kind of, of grand conspiracy theory. And what they reported was that it was fairly stable over, over the decades. Now, there were peaks uh, during periods of, of massive instability, right, of big social upheaval. And unfortunately, that's that's where we are right now, right? We're in the middle of this big pandemic, uh, especially in the beginning, there was so much uncertainty. Our way of life was changing. There were lockdowns, mask mandates. Um, and so that is this, it's this big, uncertain, disruptive situation that causes anxiety in a lot of people. And it causes these people to seek out answers. Unfortunately, scientists had to say in the beginning, we don't know a lot. Uh, whereas conspiracy theorists were able to say, we know everything. We have all of the answers, just listen to us. And that is always uh, very seductive. Jerry says conspiracy theories have polluted the flow of information during the pandemic. Measures to combat conspiracy theories are aimed at those receiving the misinformation rather than the true conspiracy believers sending it. These measures include ensuring facts are promoted and encouraging people to check the sources behind information. I don't think these measures are meant for the, the hardcore conspiracists uh, because they're just, they're just not going to cut it. Uh, they really are for the people who are on the fence and for people uh, who, who just don't know uh, because all of this conspiracy mongering and this misinformation, it creates pollution in the information uh, landscape. And so that's that's the big issue is that I, I frequently hear people saying, you know, I heard this thing. I read that thing. And, and they're wondering if it's true or not, uh, because they might not have had the time to check the source. Is, is this a reliable source? They might not have had the time to look for another source to see if they have reported on this thing that they've just read. It just gets shared on social media, gets shared on WhatsApp. Uh, they might catch a video that's recommended to them by YouTube. And, and so, and so they, and so you just need to provide them with the correct information. 
and explain to them why this thing that they saw is misinformation, why it's not true. And very, very often these people will go, oh, well, okay, great, thank you. Uh, thank you for reassuring me. So these messages are, are, are useful for that because it's just, there's just so much pollution in the, in the information ecosystem that you need to bring in good information in there. Otherwise, the, the only thing that will be left will be the misinformation. Angus Bridgman is a PhD candidate in political science at McGill University. He has studied social media and misinformation throughout the pandemic. One study showed that social media users are more likely to believe misinformation. A study published in July of last year showed that people who got their information from traditional news media were less likely to have misconceptions and more likely to follow public health rules. Another study showed that misinformation that originated in the United States spread to Canada. That study was published in April by researchers from McGill University and the University of Toronto in Frontiers in Political Science. Bridgman was the lead author. It showed that social media users in Canada were more likely to be exposed to false information from the U.S. and more likely to embrace misinformation and spread it. He says misinformation has spread in Canada despite a political consensus about the severity of the pandemic. Bridgman says changing scientific information throughout the pandemic has created a shifting landscape. It's useful to sort of take a step back and think a little bit more broadly about what misinformation is in the context of social media. So misinformation uh, is, a, is an amorphous, ever-changing concept. And uh, sort of a funny anecdote is at the beginning of the, the pandemic, we were asking questions about, we, we were doing these large uh, surveys and we were asking questions about mask use because, of course, people remember at the be- in the early days of the pandemic in Canada, people were being cautioned not to wear masks, saying that they were ineffective or that they would take the supplies away from frontline medical workers. So we were asking questions about this as if it was misinformation. And of course, that changed and masks became sort of mainstream scientific consensus that, yes, in fact, masks really do inhibit the, the spread of the virus. So, so the, the underlying point there is that the amount of misinformation changes over time. Um, and this makes it very difficult for kind of platform governance or social media companies themselves to regulate it and monitor it. There have been a lot of efforts by social media companies, sort of voluntary efforts, um, but there's still a really long way to go in terms of making sure that, that um, the conversation on social media platforms is not free from misinformation because I think misinformation and sort of the questioning of the public narrative can be a very helpful thing, but that specific pieces of misinformation aren't propagated and amplified through social media platforms. And I think that that's where there's some real work that can be done. People might have a well-established perception about conspiracy theorists, but they are not always malignant people intent on ignoring harm at the expense of others. Bridgman says the people sharing misinformation in Canada might surprise. There's something kind of well established in the in the literature on this called the the paradox of participation. And basically the paradox of participation is that those who are most active online, who care the most and who are very passionate about politics and and that that is, you know, that that is something to be celebrated are also the most likely to spread misinformation. And there's a few reasons for that. Um partly because they're sort of implicated in a lot of this more polarized partisan conversations online. They can kind of go down a little bit of echo chambers and rabbit holes and kind of feel very passionately about their opinions and then sort of spread those out. So there's this very active community. And, and in fact, what we find is that misinformation in the Canadian context is not spread necessarily by kind of malignant actors or actors seeking to undermine kind of Canadian democracy or Canadian public health, but is in fact spread by, um, I think, sort of well-meaning Canadians themselves. 
Um, and so that, that makes it sort of uh, particularly difficult to, to talk about and to, to have any sort of regulation or control over because you don't really want to be doing that. You don't really want to be saying to, to people who care about politics and who believe that the information they're spreading is, is accurate, you don't want to, to censor them or uh, stamp out their voices. And so that, that, that does make it very difficult. In the particular case of COVID-19 misinformation, at the beginning of the pandemic, there were a whole number of actors, including the President of the United States, who intentionally were spreading information about COVID-19 that later turned out to be false. They perhaps knew was false at the time, and they were doing so for political and partisan purposes. And so that that kind of poisoned the well to some extent and produced sort of a, a situation where particularly partisans were more likely to spread misinformation. Bridgman says a new study he's taking part in shows most misinformation shared on Twitter in Canada comes from American sources. The study examines the 200,000 most active Twitter users in Canada and finds that they get more exposure to American information and misinformation. That surprised Bridgman, but he sees a possible solution too. Bridgman says the same sort of Canadian content regulation that has long existed could be applied to social media. Television and radio broadcasters have traditionally had to comply with regulations that mandated Canadian content. So one kind of big thing to think about is in the Canadian context, there's active support for Canadian cultural programming. And uh, the CRTC encourages kind of the production of Canadian content. Uh, these dynamics don't operate in social media spaces. So if you're on social media spaces, you're far more likely to see out-of-country information as compared to in-country information. And that is not necessarily entirely driven by preferences. Of course, Canadians care about American politics and are interested in what's going on there. But there might actually be some algorithmic and psychological processes that are underpinning that, that potentially there's some sort of regulatory solution for. Bridgman says social media can amplify misinformation born from conspiracy theories, but a lack of regulation creates barriers to addressing misinformation on social media. The absence of rules leaves private social media companies to regulate themselves. Bridgman thinks that falls short as effective protection against misinformation. Yeah, so so solutions are are difficult in this space. I think the government is taking a large number of actions, sort of trying to educate the mass public, produce sort of like more uh, digitally literate populations, trying to crowd out misinformation on social media spaces. I think all of these are, are worthwhile initiatives, although there's some limited evidence for their efficacy. I think there does need to be some sort of democratic governance and oversight of social media platforms. A lot of what the large players are doing is self-regulation right now. And they do so kind of in a, in a space where governments and policymakers cannot really assess the extent to which they are effective at monitoring and controlling misinformation on their platforms. That's troubling because basically we're giving private actors control over the public sphere. So how do you respond to this? Do you remove conspiracy theorists from Twitter and other social media platforms? Do you sit them down and have a stern talk about the science behind vaccines? Is this about trust in government? It's probably all three. Tim Caulfield is the author of the book, Relax, Damn It. That's going to be, I think, one of the legacies of, of, of the pandemic is this greater appreciation of the harm that misinformation does. But we're talking about deaths, hospitalizations, right, property damage, skewed health and science policy, the hydroxychloroquine debacle is a really good example of that. It also can have an impact on that very personal level, on the relationship level, especially when, when misinformation kind of becomes part of your personal identity. 
uh, once it gets to that phase, right? So this is, you know, part of who you are, you know, you, you believe in these things. It becomes very difficult to change those individuals' minds, right? And it can have a, you know, real consequence on the personal level. But you know, you know something? I think it also goes to why it's so important to debunk stuff immediately, you know, when it emerges. We want to, we want to get to that misinformation before it takes on that kind of ideological valence, you know, before it becomes something that's part of a, a particular community. Because once it gets to that, that level, for some individuals, it becomes very difficult to change their minds. Caulfield says countering misinformation works. I know it doesn't feel like it because everyone has a crazy uncle and they can't change their mind. And the data tells us so when you look at it, the body of evidence that it does work. So that means using good science. That means highlighting the rhetorical tricks that are used to push misinformation. That means listening, being empathetic. That means using creative strategies like humor, stuff that's shareable content that works on social media. Uh, all of those strategies really do work. But look, this is an incredibly complex problem. We need to come at it from every direction. So we need social media platforms to step up, and we're seeing that more and more. We need regulators to step up, to you know, shut down people that are selling bunk products and pushing pseudoscience. We're seeing that more and more, but more, even more, please. Um, we absolutely need to teach critical thinking skills throughout the education process. And I'm talking kindergarten through university and after, right? Let's have adult education on critical thinking skills. Uh, we have to teach media literacy. We, we've got to give people the tools to get to credible sources, you know, take them, bring them to the truth, uh, as, as one of my colleagues recently said. Uh, we have to come at this from every single angle because I actually think this is one of the challenges of our times. Jerry says society as a whole must come together to try to counter conspiracy theories and misinformation. Like Caulfield, he cites education and regulation as the two keys to ensure truth prevails. But there's no easy path. I think that, broadly speaking, yeah, I, I think that we're, we're moving towards this, this being recognized as a sort of a, a civic responsibility, uh, especially when it comes to what we share on social media. I do not share uh, something uh, on Twitter unless... I have read it with very few exceptions, unless it comes from a highly trustworthy uh, person that I know, and I know and I can infer what the content of the article is. Uh, but otherwise, I don't share it because if I haven't had time to, to check it myself and to validate it, I don't want to be spreading what could potentially be mi misinformation. I, I find that this is a matter of civic responsibility. We often talk about the two arms, which is education and regulation. So how much of this should be, you know, we should educate people uh, not to fall for this misinformation and these conspiracy theories, and how much of this should be regulation. And of course, it's, you know, ultimately, it should be both. And so on, uh, from the point of view of, of education, I mean, it, it would be nice to see media literacy and science literacy and scientific curiosity and education in how to recognize misinformation in general be more part of school curricula. Of course, this is a very tall order because whenever you want to add something to a school curriculum, you have to remove something and nobody wants to remove anything. But, but I, I think it is so important because this is where we're getting our information. We're getting it online and we haven't been trained on how to vet information online, really, not formally. Uh, I think it would be great to add this to school curriculum. Jerry agrees that regulation can be vexing. Legitimate stories about medical issues with vaccines can be used by conspiracy theorists to bolster their beliefs. But he proposes an approach for everybody that can address part of the problem. 
Jerry says people need to resist the platforms that cater to people pressed for time and offer tidbits or headlines in place of comprehensive information. It's a problem of providing the right context and sometimes traditional media for various reasons, such as being understaffed and over uh, under so much pressure, um, are not always rising to the occasion when it comes to contextualizing findings uh, within a complicated body of evidence. So, you know, it's, and, and also, and then there's a reader who might not even read the article, just read the headline. And all of a sudden it's, oh, this vaccine causes massive blood clots in a bunch of people. It's, it's, it's dangerous, dangerous. Let's not take it. And that's, that's a problem with, with, with headlines and with the whole sort of clickbaity culture that we now have because, you know, everybody wants your eyeballs. And so what are you going to do to get, to get as many eyeballs as you can? You're going to try and, and, and write these headlines that are, that are more and more extreme and, and full of hype, uh, and, and, and that are pulling on emotional strings in the reader to get them to click on that thing. Um, so it, so it, it's a very complicated problem. One of the solutions that I keep proposing is that we, all of us as, as consumers of information online, we all need to slow down. And it's very difficult because these platforms are encouraging us to be quick and to, and to stay on the service and to like and to share and to have an immediate reaction to what we're seeing right now. Um, but that is not conducive to critical thinking. Um, and, uh, and so I, I tell people to just slow down if you don't have time to verify a piece of information, it's better not to share it than to share something that might turn out to be false and that might lead somebody to, for example, not get vaccinated. So, so by slowing down and only sharing what we have taken the time to vet, we can all be part of the solution in halting the spread of misinformation. Conspiracy theories offer easy and comprehensive solutions for complex problems but there's no easy way to address them or the misinformation they spread in the era of social media. The onus lies with everybody to remain vigilant and only share information from credible sources. I'm Phil Tank, a post-media reporter with the Saskatoon Star Phoenix. Thanks for listening. Reporting and narration for this episode of COVID Conspiracies by Phil Tank. Additional reporting by Tyler Dawson. Our producers are Carson Jarama, Jacob Dubay, and Bryce Hall. Original music and artwork by Bryce Hall. I'm your host, Monique Baudin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>